Well, brethren, most of you know this, but it may good be to re review it today. And many of our new people, our people here are new. We have a lot of young people for the singles people from all over. And I hope all of us can realize, perhaps more than we have, that we are a continuation of the historical church of God. There has always been a church of God. The New Testament church of God began on the day of Pentecost in 31 A.D. It carried right on down through, of course, Jesus Christ and through the apostles Peter, James, and John, into John's disciples, Polycarp, later Polycrates, later men like Peter Waldo, and over in England, John James, and many others who had to give their lives as smarters, and continued down through men like Jacob Brinkerhoff over here, A.N. Duggar, A.F. Dubber, Herbert, Herbert W. Armstrong, and now we're here. We're carrying on this work. When I first came into the church back in the autumn, September of 1949, we were meeting in the library of Ambassador College, and we had about, I met 20 to 30 people. That was it. That was the headquarter church of God. We had another church of similar size, about 25 or 30, up in Eugene, Oregon, and another church of about that same size up in Portland. That was it. No churches in Europe or anywhere else. No churches east of the Rocky Mountains. We just had a very small group. And Herbert W. Armstrong was trying to raise up the church of God again and cause it to have power to reach this world. And God used him wonderfully to do that overall. The church got up to 150,000 people overall, which is still very small, but a work was being done. And some of us, after the Worldwide Church of God came apart after Mr. Armstrong's death, had to revive the work. I was not anxious to get out and do something in that particular way. I tried to stay there and stay there as long as I could. And when I found out they were changing not only healing and makeup, but they were changing the Sabbath, the Holy Days, everything, then I had to get out. I could not live with myself if I did not get out. So we started at that point the Global Church of God, and we had about 12 members in my home. I guess it was 19 members altogether in my home in, out at Glendora, California. And the second Sabbath, we went down to Mr. Davis' condominium where he was, he was overseeing a whole group of about 30 different condominiums or apartments in this big building and had a recreation room. Then we had 42 people. So we have grown from that 19 or that 42 people now to where we have probably over 11,000 people meeting together, and we're very grateful for that. But as Mr. Bueno mentioned, we are just on the way. As Churchill said, we have not yet begun to fight. We've got to keep on fighting. We've got to go on to the end. We've got to get this work out to the whole world, not just to the church, but we've got to get it out to the whole world. And I hope all of us want to do that with all of our hearts that this world can know that there is a real God. We're a continuation of the church of God. And we have that opportunity. And we have that responsibility. We also have the opportunity, brethren, and you young people, you can be soldiers for Jesus Christ. You can have an impact with the youth, the energy, the strength that you have on this world. And God will be bless you forever as long as the stars will shine and you'll be laying up treasure in heaven. You really will. It's very real. 
Here we have several different world events all coming together to begin the background of the Great Tribulation. We see Europe starting to come apart as Greece perhaps is going to have to declare bankruptcy in the next few months, and that's going to have them probably force them to start over. We have the American reconnaissance forces going over the Spratly Islands. The Chinese are claiming it. The Filipinos and others are claiming it. They're warning us off. We're going there anyway. We have this terrible situation in the Middle East with ISIS just taking over one city after another in Iraq and over in Syria now, a very famous city there. They're expanding. They're going to try to grow across Libya, and from Libya they can very quickly get into Europe and land in Italy. They're threatening to attack Rome. Things are happening now that did not happen a few years ago. Things are getting close, and we have to really know, and we know that we know that. We've got to have God's help. We've got to have God's guidance. We've got to have God's divine protection. And brethren and young people, we've got to have God's power to overcome ourselves, to overcome this very confused world, and to overcome Satan the devil, or we will not make it. I don't have very much power. And I'm sorry if I stumble around a little bit or you young people don't feel sorry for me. I've had 85 wonderful years, two beautiful wives, six children, ten grandchildren, and I have about uh, four great-grandchildren, so 20 people have come from me in that particular way. I've been very, very blessed. But I want to help you with the knowledge I have and the experience I have as long as I'm able and so I hope you'll listen. I perhaps can give you some things that others can't, can't do. The younger men here have better voices. My voice is getting more old and crackly, and I'm more tired physically. But I want to help you with all my heart, and I hope that we can help you today. Mr. McNair is going to speak this afternoon, and the other Roderick, we could call him. <laughs> he was named after me, and I appreciate that. Roderick Carl. But he's going to give you more of the meaning of the day. I'm going to concentrate on a certain aspect of the Holy Spirit today more than usual because I feel it in my bones. I think it's something we really do need to emphasize. Turn with me, if you would, back to Mark, the 13th chapter in your New Testament. Mark 13. And by the way, I want to thank the young lady who sang it. It was very beautiful. And thank Jonathan Bueno for the fine sermonette. But now let's turn to Mark 13. Most of you know this is a pro prophecy like Matthew 24 about the end of the world, the great tribulation and what's going to come. And after describing some of those things that are going to come, he said in verse 17, Mark 13:17, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those nursing babies in those days and pray that your flight may not be in the winter. Sometimes we say, oh, well, we just read that means nothing. We need to really think about that. We need to be praying right now for many things, the work of God primarily and God's Spirit overwhelmingly. And humanly, we need to pray that God will guide the United States Supreme Court. God tells us to pray for our rulers. And I charge all of you who understand, do, do what God says. Pray for our rulers and pray for the Supreme Court that they will not make the kind of decision on same-sex marriage that would close us down. God can guide them where they will permit same-sex marriage to a certain extent and yet not allow those people trying to rush this thing through and change the whole society to punish us, to persecute us, and to close down those who would preach God's truth. God's in charge.
He will guide us that way if we pray. And we are to pray then that as the time comes to flee, that we will not have to flee in the winter. So we're going to flee in a sense that is not always going to be by a fleet of airplanes and air-conditioned planes to an air-conditioned hotel. We're going to go through some very terrible times before it's all over. God is not going to give eternal life to a bunch of cowards. God is not going to give eternal life to people that are half-hearted, that are lukewarm. And God help you not to be lukewarm. This is a lukewarm generation. You kids, you young people, any of you under 30 are kids as far as I'm concerned. I have grandchildren your age. I have one granddaughter 36 years of age. You young people realize you are more surrounded by this world than any generation has ever been in human history. No other generation gets push a button and suddenly all kinds of rotten stuff comes right at them in their living room. There's never been a time like that where you have the kind of exposure to the world, to foul music, to pornography, to every rotten thing imaginable. But pray that God will let you go to a place of safety, that he will cause you to be zealous and filled with his spirit, and that God will protect you as you go. For in those days, verse 19, there will be tribulation, listen, such as has not been since the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. I want to read that slowly. There has never been a tribulation on this earth in all of human history, including the terrible murders and violence before the flood, the flood itself, and all the other wars and upsets, including the Holocaust. Never has there been a time like this since creation. God says so. Jesus Christ said so. It's coming on your generation, you young people. Some of us older people may miss it. And that will be a blessing in a sense. But it's going to come just as sure as the rising and setting of the sun. Most of you have heard me tell about all the big prophecies that I heard Mr. Armstrong give back in 1949, 51, and in Britain over in 54, where he said the British Empire would go down and be no more. He said we would begin to lose our sea gates one by one. And he named some of the sea gates like Suez. And about two years later, my wife and I were over in Britain and we lost Suez right then. It was taken away just about two years after I heard him say it was going to happen. We had an office in 4243 Cranbourne Street just off Leicester Square. We couldn't begin to start to commence to pay for that now. It's such an expensive area. But we had offices right there. And the British people there liked us, our other office mates in this big office building. We came in one morning. They said, we don't love you today, you know. The British often ask things in the form of a question, if you've been there. And they weren't mad, but they were a little bit bugged because Eisenhower was pressured by his Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, to make the British and the French and the Israeli paratroopers to get out of the Suez Canal. And Britain was pushed out of that great Suez Canal, one of the greatest passageways of the entire world, one of the great sea gates, Mr. Armstrong said in advance, years in advance, that it would be taken. And it was taken, all because of this one man, or God guided it perhaps because of punishment. Britain was already turning away. But John Foster Dulles was the one that immediately caused it, I get. So Winston Churchill said, Dull, duller, Dulles, <laughs> and uh, he didn't like John Foster Dulles, obviously, who brought this about. 
Those things have happened one after the other. God is very, very real. He has had specific prophecies already fulfilled. Mr. Armstrong used to talk again and again about the Eastern European nations breaking free. He was saying that back in the 1960s and 70s. And all of a sudden, that winter of 1989-1990, he was dead. He did bring it about in person. He knew God would bring it out. Sure enough, it did. Poland got free. Czechoslovakia got free. Romania, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia got free. The Russians were pressed out. The Berlin Wall did come down. A very exciting time. God is real. These prophecies affected hundreds and hundreds of millions of people, young people. They weren't done in a corner. We're not talking about something, you know, just theoretical, nicey nice stuff. Little old ladies who got sentimental. No, this is the great God of power, the God behind this work, the God of creation. We're to pray for God's mercy during this tribulation that's coming on this generation, your generation, that is worse than anything that has ever been since the beginning of creation that God created until this time, nor ever shall be. May God help you to pray and may God help you to get excited and want to have God's protection, want to have God's power so you can overcome yourself, your vanity, your lust, your greed, all the things you have working on you from your human nature, from this world, and from Satan the devil directly getting at you, and you need God's help to overcome those things without question. So I hope that you will be excited about that in the right way and want that power from Almighty God that is pictured in a certain degree by this day of Pentecost. Back in Revelation 21, turn there with me if you would, the book of Revelation, chapter 21, and let's begin in verse 7. He who overcomes, you can't just sit there and just attend church. We're glad to have you. We're very glad to have you. We hope we can help you. But eventually you've got to take action. Maybe more than many of you are not just being a nice person that's sitting in a chair. But overcoming yourself, the world and Satan, having a vital part of the very work of preparing the way for the return of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, to this earth. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. Tapanta, the entire universe that is indicated in the Greek language. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, notice the first thing God mentions here, Christ is speaking. What? Are you cowards? Are you going to run when trouble comes? Some of you will. You say, how do you know, Mr. Meredith? Because I've been the Bible teacher to thousands, about 2,000 students, and I've talked to many other thousands of people at the Feast of Tabernacles and across the United States with superintendent of ministers for 12 years and visited church after church. How many of those people are here? Not very many. How many of those people are still in any church of God? Very few, comparatively. Most people do give up. Most people do flee. Most people are overcome. They are not overcomers. I know that. Some of you don't know that. But you do need to have the right fear of God and awe of the great God who has intervened powerfully and want with all your heart and set your mind. God says to ancient Israel, I set before you this day life and breath, death and evil. So God is going to give you life if you serve him with your whole heart. 
But the cowards, unbelieving, you can't trust God. Why? Examine yourself. The abominable murders, sexually immoral. Some of you are sexually immoral. You're lusting. Some of you are committing fornication from time to time. I know that. You shouldn't be. Repent. Stop it. The sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, some of you are worshiping this world. That becomes your idol. Your own body becomes your idol. Money and having a good time is the thing you put it way ahead of God, and that's a form of idolatry. And all liars, people make excuses and they end up lying sometimes. And all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Don't be there. God sets before you life. Choose life. Choose life. Dedicate yourself with passion to be an overcomer. Dedicate yourself with passion to drink in of Christ and have Christ living his life in you because that is the Holy Spirit in action. Jesus Christ in you. And so this day pictures the power of God's Spirit and we certainly need that power. Turn with me now, brethren, to Acts chapter 2. And here we find the New Testament church starting. It was called the Congregation in the Wilderness. Back in Acts 7, I think it was verse 38. So they had a church, a physical congregation. But this New Testament church began on the day of Pentecost, as you know. And back here in Acts chapter 2 and verse 22, Peter is preaching here. This is before the day of Pentecost. To those few people that were listening, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to by God to you. Why? By sentimental words, just give your heart to the Lord. No, this shows God's power. And we in this church have got to have God's power more than we do. We do not have the depth of faith or the profound faith or we will have more of that power. A man attested to you by what? By wonders, by miracles, wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. God showed his power through Jesus Christ that that was the Christ, the promised one. Him being delivered by determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. You, you guys, he's right there in the room with them. He could have been killed by them. He knew that. You guys have did, by determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death. You killed him whom God raised up from the dead because it was not possible that he should be held by it. God has power over life and death, and we must believe that and know that. Our hope is not eternal life in this flesh. Our hope is eternal life in God's kingdom, in the resurrection from the dead, but we've got to believe that. Not be cowards, not be afraid of death in a wrong way, but know and know that we know that God is real, that God will do what he has said he will do. Drop down to verse 36. Here Peter is still talking to them. He says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this same Jesus, whom you, you guys crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when these Jews, hundreds of them, heard this, thousands of them, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, What shall we do? 
What are we going to do? They were scared. And hadn't they hit them? Because they'd seen some of the miracles that were taking place here already. And Peter said, repent, every one of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Be immersed in water as a symbol of death. You're willing to die. And you're accepting Christ's death on your behalf. And at that point, when you're baptized, young people, you're not joining the church. You're not joining the club. When I baptized students in Ambassador College, scores of them, maybe hundreds, some of them thought they were joining the club. I finally had to realize that and tell them, no, we don't have any club. I can't give you the Holy Spirit. Mr. Armstrong can't give you the Holy Spirit. Dr. Hay can't give you the Holy Spirit. Only God can give you the Holy Spirit. When you're baptized and you go down into that watery grave, you are making a covenant with your Creator. You're telling the God who gives you life and breath, the God that created the sun, the moon, the stars, that are about to intervene and shake every mountain and every island out of his place. You're telling that God, I am giving my life to you. I'm surrendering to you through Jesus Christ as my Savior. And I'm surrendering to let him live my life for me. I want Christ in me. I want the Holy Spirit in me. I want to do it with all my heart. And so you want to do that. You're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission, the forgiveness of your sins. You've all sinned. In your heart and mind, you've had vanity, jealousy, lust, and greed. Then what's going to happen? You shall receive what? Not membership in a club. There is no club. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, part of God's very nature. And as Mr. Armstrong expressed it, and it's certainly true, the Bible indicates that, God actually impregnates you with part of his very nature. He puts the divine spark, the divine sperm, the very nature, his nature implanted in you. Just as the father's sperm is implanted in the mother and a little child grows from that. So surely God puts his very nature in you if you repent, really repent, and are baptized in Christ's name for the promise You've got to learn to believe God's promise or you'll never overcome. Think about it. Believe God's promise. Mr. Armstrong mentioned hundreds of times this word. Believe what God says. God has promised. And one of the key definitions of faith that he gave is that, that you believe that God is there. You believe he's all powerful. And you believe and you know that God will keep his promises. God will keep his promises. The promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So it's a promise. You've got to claim that promise. Believe it. And he testified many other words. Be saved from this perverse generation. And boy, if that generation was perverse, think about your generation, young people, surrounded by vanity, jealousy, lust, and greed, pornography, lust, Violence everywhere rising all over the world. We're all over the Middle East. These ISIS and other groups are cutting people, heads off, torturing, raping, butchering, beating up on people, humiliating people all through the Middle East and parts of Africa and elsewhere. And it's spreading. It's going to spread. It's going to come over here. Then those who gladly received the word were baptized and that were added about 3,000 people they continued the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, breaking of bread, and in prayer. They prayed together many, many times. And then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs. Power. 
the power of God's Spirit, many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. So we need to think about that. We need to cry out and ask God, please, Father, help me to give my life to you with a passion and really mean it. And we beseech you to begin to pour out this power so that the world, so that the rest of the church and all the people may know that you are God and back up the preaching of the word with power and more of the gifts of God's Spirit. So that's what they were praying and that's what they were asking at this time. Now if you'll turn, if you would, over to chapter uh, 3 now. This would be Acts chapter 3 and verse 4. If I can catch my right place here. It describes how this man at the gate called Beautiful at the temple was asking, begging. And Peter came and said to him, Acts 3 verse 4, look on us. And he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Obviously, he just wanted money. He didn't yet believe. God sometimes performs unusual miracles at the beginning to encourage people, whether they have very much faith or not. Many of you older brethren could tell the young people that. Most of us have experienced that. We don't break up all these stories to try to impress people. That would be lying. There are certain groups that I've met, better not name them, religious groups outside God's church, where they do that regularly. They just tell these stories. After a while, you know they've got all these stories. But I had one such event. It wasn't very exciting for most people, but it was encouraging to me. I was not converted, or maybe I'd barely been baptized, I guess, but I, I was very weak. And I had warts all over my hands, both hands, and they wouldn't grow away. And I met Mrs. Aparty has probably heard me tell this story many times, some of you old-timers, but some of you haven't. This really happened before God. I had these warts, and I was thought I was tough, so I tried to cut them off with a razor blade. I literally cut them off, and my mother got on me. She said, Roderick, you'll kill yourself, or you'll bleed to death, or you'll get infected. And so I would take a matchstick and blow it out real quick and put that on them and try to kill them that way. Then she got upset and wanted me to not do that. So she took me to the doctor and he gave me the electric needle. You put an electric needle down in the core of the wart to kill it. I had the healthiest warts west of the Mississippi. <laughs> they kept growing right back. They wouldn't go away. Finally... I asked Mr. Armstrong, he gave a sermon on healing, and I asked him to anoint me about these warts. And he did not heal right away. It was kind of a test of faith. But six or nine weeks later, I can't remember, a month and a half or two months later, every morning on the third floor of Mayfair, the student dorm, I, my bed, my, my uh, feet would hit the floors. I'd get up in the morning, and I, it was nearly every morning. I better not swear it was every morning, but nearly every morning. I would look and see, are the warts still there? <laughs> they were always still there, full blast. One day, I woke up. And they were totally gone. I thought, what happened? I looked under the sheets. They were not there. I really did. I looked under the bed, and they were not there. I thought, where did they go? Well, God just vaporized them, I guess, like an atomic bomb. He just took them totally away. Well, that was a very encouraging to me. And that was one of the few unusual miracles that have happened just to me personally. I remember my daughter Elizabeth had a terrible ear infection. was hurting, and I prayed for her, and she was healed. Many other people more spectacular than that. I've told you about some of it. Dennis Brady's little daughter had the fatal variety of spinal meningitis, and I prayed for her, and she was healed dramatically. Many people have been healed, but that was my account of myself. 
God knew, I guess, I needed that one a bit of personal encouragement. And in the early weeks of my conversion, he gave me that to let me know, yes, I am here. He doesn't heal everything. I wish back then I'd had a, been anointed for my eyes. That was more important than warts. My eyes were getting worse and other things. But he healed those warts in a dramatic way in a sense. Five or seven, eight weeks later, they were just disappeared. They were gone. So God encourages us. So anyway, we need to realize that God does do that. And so Peter was there, and this man fixed his eyes on them. And Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, verse 6, but what I do have I give you. He had the power of God's Spirit in the name. In the name beast, in the authority, by the power of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankles received strength, and he leaped and walked and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Hundreds of people saw that. It was a wonderful witness to many, many people of the power of God. Turn over to chapter 4 now, Acts 4 right after the day of Pentecost once again. Verse 29, the apostles had just been threatened and beaten, and they were upset. These Jews were after them to beat them up, and so they prayed together in this room, this building. Acts 4, 29, they all got together. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. How does he give us that authority, that encouragement? Grant us boldness by stretching out your hand to heal. Boy, that's encouraging when you have a supernatural healing and you know what's there. You know God is there. Give us this boldness by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name, the authority, the power of your servant, Jesus Christ. And when they had prayed, a whole group of them prayed fervently together. The whole building was shaken just like this was shaken and some people would yell and scream. They wouldn't know the building's going to fall down. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they did speak the word of God with boldness. God intervened at the beginning there to encourage those people, as we had a lot of miracles when I first came to Ambassador College. A lot of people were being healed and blessed in an unusual way as this Church of God era got underway to show God's power. Turn with me now to Second Timothy Go to 2 Timothy, if you would, chapter 1. Got to get a little bit of this tea here. In 2 Timothy 1, in verse 3, God describes the wonderful attitude of Timothy's grandmother and mother. And verse 5, the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. My grandmother... Elizabeth Cunningham Meredith was not converted, but she did believe the Bible in many ways, and she did teach me to read the Bible even more than my parents. And I do want to always honor that. I've developed a love of the Bible through her, and that helped me the rest of my life. Therefore, verse 6, 2 Timothy 1, verse 6, I remind you, you young evangelist, to stir up. Don't let, let us dry there. Get excited about it. The Greek word means kindle into flame like you'd whip up a fire. Stir up the gift of God which is in you by the laying on of my hands. Paul laid his hands on Timothy after baptism. For God has not given us a spirit of fear. 
So many people have fear. I'm not sure God's there. I'm not sure this is going to happen. I'm not sure that we're going to be really protected. I'm not sure of this and that. They have fear and doubt and not faith. Do not be cowards. Do not be faithless. Beseech God. Cry out to God for God's Holy Spirit, His nature. It is not the spirit of fear, but the spirit of what's the first positive thing? The spirit of power. By the power of the great God, the waters were below were separated from the waters above as God created this earth and caused the lands to come together in the seas. An expanse was made, he called the heavens. And then above that was the third heaven of God's throne. So God himself had power. It is the spirit of power. It's a spirit of love. And we know the fruits of the spirit. Perhaps Mr. McNair will talk more about that this afternoon. Love, joy, peace, faith, gentleness, self-control. You need these fruits of God's Holy Spirit. But it's the spirit of power. And as we enter the last age, we need to think about the power part because we're going to need that so much. The spirit of power, of love, and don't jump the ditch and go into crazy stuff. Think, where has God worked all these years? Who is really preaching the work of God, the, the Word of God fully? Who really is carrying on the work that Christ began through Mr. Armstrong? We're not perfect, brethren. We don't claim to be perfect. But we in this work have done that more fully. And of all the Church of God groups in the whole world, the main one where the leading men came was right here to the global and now living Church of God. Men like Raymond McNair, D. Partian, Carl McNair that had been taught and trained by Mr. Armstrong, Mr. Dick Ames, and many, many others have come with us who were early on serving God and they came here. They did not go somewhere else. Mr. Armstrong's personal trainer and friend, Dr. Lochner, came here at first. Dr. Torrance, who had been one of the early members and college teachers. Those men came. They did not. Now, I won't name the other groups. They didn't go there, though. They came here. They came here to this work. We are carrying on. They saw the fruits. They knew who we were, the leaders. They knew that was the place to go. We've got a responsibility. We're not great of ourselves, so let's not be bragging about it, but we want to realize where God has been working and where he is working now and have faith and courage. We've got to go forward. We've got to have more faith. We've got to have more power, more power, and have the impact on this very sick world before the evil, the darkness descends, and it's going to be descending in the next several years. Some of it's already happening in the Middle East, as you know. There have been whole major articles, an entire major article recently came out in the front of this whole section of the Wall Street Journal, how Christians all through the Middle East, where Christianity began, are being run out, not by the dozens, not by the hundreds, but by the thousands. And pretty soon there won't be any Christians left in the Holy Land, they said, if it keeps on. That's how bad it is getting. Satan is trying to drive out every form of Christianity. And if this government cracks down on us through the machinations of Satan the devil, some of you young people have never faced persecution. You haven't been beaten up. You haven't been thrown in jail. 
You haven't had guns pointed at you or rocks thrown at you. I have. I have had rocks thrown at me and men cursing me and pointing guns at me on the early baptizing tours. But I've never started to commence to go through as the early apostles did. I haven't been really beaten up and thrown into jail. None of us have had that. We've got to examine ourselves. Do we have the faith and the courage or will we be cowards when the trial comes? It will come. We need power. We need faith. We need the passion to cry out for God's Spirit so we will be there in God's work and be there when Christ comes back to this earth as King of Kings. So we want to cry out for that and not take it for granted. So the first thing Paul mentions here is the spirit of power and of love, outflowing concern, the love, the worship, the adoration for God. We worship Him. We adore Him. We give our lives to Him. And then we love one another and try to serve and help one another in every way we can. We've got to have that complete outflowing concern and deeper mercy, deeper compassion for one another. For those people sitting here in this room, deeper compassion, they have their trials, their hurts. Deeper compassion for our neighbors wherever we live. Our fellow citizens in the United States, Canada, Britain, and elsewhere. And deeper compassion for those people in the Middle East, in Africa, in Asia, all over the world. That are hurting, suffering, being raped, murdered, tortured, beaten up, killed by the hundreds Right now, while I speak, some of it's going on without question. You know that. If you read the paper, you'll read about it tomorrow. All through the Middle East, it's happening every hour. It's going to get much, much worse. So we need to have deep compassion to do what we can to reach those people while we have the opportunity and to reach those people with increasing power. Turn with me now back to 1 Kings 17. 1 Kings 17. And here we're going to read about the power of God to give us more of an insight. Jesus Christ said, Jesus, the Bible says here, Hebrews 13, verse 8. Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And back in Malachi 3, 1, God says, I am the eternal. I change not. His basic way of working is very similar. He's always taught the Ten Commandments. He's always shown that he's a God of power. No way around that. But here's an example of one of the greatest men of human history. When Jesus showed the apostles a vision in Matthew 17. You want to read it? Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 to 9. A vision, a transfiguration of tomorrow's world. He showed them the vision of Christ with Elijah and with Moses. Now here's Elijah suddenly appears in 1 Kings 17. And Elijah the Tishbite said to Ahab, the king of Israel, who was very carnal and rotten, as the Lord whom the, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be, be dew nor rain. Total drought. Not one bit of dew or rain except at my word. And then God told him, go off and hide because the king's going to kill you. So he did. And again, power. doesn't sound exciting, but he had this power. God even had birds feeding him. God can take care of you in any, wherever you are. If you're in jail, they put you in the tightest prison. Does it make any difference to God? No. Well, if they strap me to a rocket and say, we're going to send you to outer space and you just keep going and never come back. Should I be scared to death? I might be, but I shouldn't be. I should know that it's outer space. What do you mean outer space? Sometimes people think they've gone up in a rocket. They've conquered space. 
when they've caught up to conquer space. So here's the earth. Here's the earth, my hearing aid. <laughs> you can see it. Outer space goes on and on way beyond this building. Billions of times further out. The earth is nothing. So men go up about this far from the earth. They think they've conquered space. They haven't conquered anything. The great God is way above all that. So if they strap you in some rocket and send you so-called outer space, you don't need to be afraid. God can take care of you wherever you are in whatever situation you're in. And really no one knows that you know that. Here God had even birds, ravens, were feeding some bread to his servant. And then pretty soon why the book broke right up where he was getting rank and then God told him to go somewhere else. He said, I've commanded a widow to take care of you. So we went over to stay with her, and as he came to her, she only had a little bit of food, and she said in verse 12, As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour and a bin, a little jar of oil. I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. The whole area was starving. Here was Elijah there who could have starved to death to this poor widow, but God sent him there. And Elijah said, verse 13, Do not fear. I told you earlier, do not be cowards when the trouble comes. Don't be. Have God's spirit of power and of faith and of a sound mind. Know that God says what he means and means what he says. Do not fear. Go on and do what you said. Make me a small cape. And then afterward, feed yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. God will intervene and take care of it. And he did. Of course, it shows that all, that all worked out. Later, this young boy died, and his sickness was so serious that no breath left in him. Verse uh, 17 and so she said to Elijah, whom she'd been helping take care of, What have I to do with you? Verse 18, O man of God, have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? She was all upset here. The very man of God has come and yet my son dies. People are like that, you know. They, they don't know what to say. So she said that. And he said, Give me your son. And he took this little boy up in his arms to the upper room where he was living, laid him on his bed, and then he cried out, and if you read some of these expressions, I know I'm talking to my friend Mordecai Joseph who grew up speaking Hebrew. These expressions usually mean just that and beyond. He perhaps yelled out to God, as Mordecai said. This word means powerfully crying out, Father, help me! Have you ever played like that? Well, don't alarm your neighbor through the wall, <laughs> but think about it. God wants you to really cry out and mean it. He's there. And Elijah cried out and said, O oh Lord, my God, have you brought this tragedy upon the widow with whom I lodged by killing her son? And he stretched himself on the child three times. He literally got on top of the little boy, stretched out his, his body on him to try to warm him in a sense. Maybe God showed him that was what he ought to do. But he's going, he's, he's showing great passion. He literally stretches his body out three times on this little boy and cries out to him, uh, and cried to the Eternal, O Lord my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. You do not have an immortal soul. 
You are a soul. So the soul means life, animal life. Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back, and he revived, and Elijah brought him up to his mother, or she came up to get him, and he said, See, your son lives. Notice verse 24. Here this woman who is berating Elijah for letting her son die. She says in verse 24, Now I know. Sometimes you're not sure. Sometimes God shows great power. And it greatly encourages our faith, as I saw in the early years of Ambassador College, some unusual, magnificent things happening. Now I know that you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Now I know, brethren, and you young people with us, let's as a church begin to cry out for God for more of the power of God's Spirit, more divine healings, more miracles, more unusual signs that men may know where God is working. They need to know that. They can't be sure. God can show them. And God can show them much quicker in that way if he chooses to do it that way. And we're human, but we certainly hope he will. In chapter 18 now, brethren, turn there. Here's Elijah with the prophets of Baal. And they have been threatening and everything. And now they got together and they were trying to show their power. And they cried out to Baal and yelled and screamed and cut themselves like a kind of a Pentecostal service. They cut themselves so they were bleeding, as you read the earlier verses here in First Kings 18. Just going nuts, yelling and cutting themselves. And Elijah kept still. He waited and finally had to fill this altar with water all around. And at the time of the evening sacrifice... They came together. Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, the real God, the God of Abraham, the picture that. Brethren, you young people, if you start reading this book and Abraham becomes a very, very real people, you don't need to learn about Elvis Presley or the modern rock stars. A lot of you know their names. I don't even know the names of the young ones. I, I, I really don't. I, I try to think I, my mind goes blank. I hope your mind goes blank on it too. They're not very important. They're going to die. They don't know God. Their, their whole way of life will change very quickly. But you do need to become a familiar friend in this book with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, 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 and Joseph and Moses and Aaron and Samuel and David and the great men and women of God of Ruth as we heard the other day and of, of uh, other great men and women of God where you know all about them. They become real to you. God was using them in his own way. So he cries out here to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known this day that you are the God in Israel and that you, that I am your servant. How do you do that? Often God did it by power. And have done all these things at your word. Verse 37. Hear me, O eternal. He was crying out to God. Probably loudly. Here's the whole group. They didn't have any microphones there. Elijah was yelling. Hear me, O eternal. Hear me. That this people may know that you are the, the eternal God. And that you have turned their hearts back to, to, to you again. You are in the showing by your power that you are God to get these people back on track to know that you're there. And you are the true God, not Baal. Hear me. 
Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the word of the wood and the stones of the dust it licked up in the trenches and they fell on their faces when they saw that fire come down, power from God. And they cried out, the eternal he is God, the eternal he is God. At some point, brethren, and you young people, you've got to know that the God of the Bible, he is God. The God of Jesus Christ is the real God of creation. The real God of Peter, James, and John, the Apostle Paul, the real God behind the church of God that keeps God's laws, his statutes, his holy days. That is God. And that God is beginning to intervene in human history just like he said he would do. He's going to bring down America and Britain and the sons of Joseph. The British descended and American peoples are going to go down and down and down and the great empire in Europe, which is now forming, they're getting together, but the wrong way, suddenly they're going to get together again on a different foundation under the great false prophet. That is going to happen in the lifetimes of all of you if you live on a few more years. It's going to be very exciting. We don't know the twists and turns. They may have another false start and pull back, but it will happen and nothing will stop it. Nothing will stop it. And our nation will go down as they get more into perversion. Men marrying men and women marrying women. And all these young people your age living together without marriage and fornication. And the media goes on and just talks like it's no problem. It is a massive problem. Fornicators will not enter God's kingdom. Where will they enter? The lake of fire. Get it. Don't be a fornicator. Don't be a pervert. Don't be a liar. Fear the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, not as a monster, but as a God of power. Have that awe of that God and cry out to him for power and to show his power in this work that not just ourselves, but all men may at least have a witness that there is a real God and that he is true servants of God on this earth. So we do want to have that attitude. We do want to cry out with passion for God and the power of God. Turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 6 now in your New Testament. Mark chapter 6 in your New Testament. Here is a story of some things Jesus Christ was doing. In Mark 6 and verse 41, he had been preaching to these people. They had run out of food. And remember, he had a little boy who had five loaves and two fishes. And so in verse 41, he took the five loaves, Mark 6, 41, and the two fish. They didn't have great big, huge fish of the Sea of Galilee. They may have been two or three pounders, but that's all they had. Two fish. And he looked up to heaven. Power is up in heaven. He looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave it to these people to divide. And so they all ate and were filled. The power of God was there in the Son of God who had been with God from eternity. He walked on the water. He did all kinds of things. How could he have faith? He looked out at that big lake. In his case, he could have more faith than we do. I know that. He could think in his mind as his pre-incarnate knowledge came back. I made that lake. He's the one that made it. He wasn't afraid to walk on that lake. And he took these fish and multiplied them. And they took up 12 baskets full of bread and fish. Now those who had eaten were the loaves were about 5,000 men 
And in Matthew's account, in verse Matthew 14, 21, it says, Beside men and women, women and children. They had big families back then. They may have 20 or 30,000 people there, a small city. He fed them all. This was God in the flesh. God showed his power. And so then they got in this boat to go to the other side. And he, he then Jesus departed to a mountain to pray at that point. And when evening had come, he was in the middle of the sea, or the middle of the Sea of Galilee, which is just a big lake. And he was alone on the land. They were in the middle of the sea. And he gave them, saw them straining. A big wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, when when this had been, from 3 to 6 a.m., from 3 to 6 a.m. in the early morning hours, he came to them walking on the water. We shouldn't doubt that. That happened. That's not some parable. That's not some illustration. That is what happened. The Word of God says that, and God does not lie. He was walking on the water that he himself had made and would have passed them by, but they were scared and cried out. Then he said, Be of good cheer, it is me. Don't be afraid. No, don't be afraid. Fear not. Don't be cowards. Then he went up into the boat, and the wind ceased right then, just like a big fan, wound down all of a sudden. Chills went up and down their spine. Wow, who is this man? They were amazed and said to themselves, and themselves, and beyond measure and marveled, why? Why were they so shocked? Why would you be shocked? Because most of us don't feed on this book. Abraham is not a familiar friend. Isaac and Jacob and, and, and Moses and all these other great men and women of God, they are not familiar friends. They don't always seem real to us. But they were amazed. Why? Verse 52. Read it carefully yourself. Verse 52. Why? For they had not understood about the loaves. If God could feed 20 or 30,000 people with two loaves, of course he could walk on the water. Of course he could turn water into wine. Of course he could raise the dead. He was God. They didn't put two and two together, even though it was right in front of them. They had not understood that the God of creation was the one who did those other things. They were amazed that Jesus could walk on the water, for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. They weren't being called. But most of you in this room right now have been called, or you would not be here. Your mind has been opened. I'm not saying everyone. I know some of you, few of you might not, but the vast majority of you, you perhaps grew up in the church, or you older people that came in on your own. You proved these things. You've been in God's church. We must know and know that we know that that great God is there and that he is intervening now in human affairs. And that's why we're going to have a greater and greater national debt. That's why we're going to have a great terrible recession and depression finally. The dollar will crash. That's why our nation will go down. That's why God's put it in the heart of our leaders to let our military come to pieces. The other nations are building theirs and we're letting ours go down. We will be pushed around, pushed around. All over this earth, America will back up and the other nations will grow in power. We will be humiliated. God has broken and is now breaking the pride of our power right now as he warned back in Leviticus chapter 26. If you turn away from me, he said there will be terror. That's the first thing he mentioned, terrorism. 
Later on, he said in verse 19, I will break the pride of your power. And believe me, you young people didn't grow up when I did. You didn't grow up during the Second World War when we had a great deal of national pride and we sang songs, we won't be back till it's over, over there, over and over again. We knew we were going to win. We somehow knew there was a real God. When we had the Pledge of Allegiance, why chills would go up and down her spine. When we thanked God, bless America, we thought there was a real God. We meant it. Everyone had a sense of patriotism and religion overall at that time, much more than today. God didn't call everybody, but the nation was much more sounded, grounded, because we had had a degree, to the degree that any people understand the Bible and honor the God of the Bible, to that degree they're blessed. And to the degree that a nation, a civilization turns away, they are not blessed. And that's what's happening to us. That's why we are going right down to their face in the mud. I use that expression because I grew up in a mining town, Joplin, Missouri, the biggest zinc, lead and zinc mining power on earth at one point for a year or two. And when you moved into a new neighborhood, or at least my neighborhood, I, I, we were, I wasn't growing up around a New York gang of gangsters. I call them our gang, our, our group of kids. Some of them had their father, were good salesmen and good uh, doctors. One, Johnny Montgomery's father was the best dentist in town. Another were successful people, but we were kids. We grew up in a tough area with a lot of miners' sons, and we had fights and rock fights. And a new boy moved into the neighborhood. He had to prove himself. We had the king of the mountain. You know, each one test the other. And you got out of line, and the other boys would literally take your face and push it right down in the mud or right down in the snow. Very humiliating. So you had to learn to fend for yourself and be tough. Well, you're going to have to fend for yourself and be tough, fellas and girls, in a few more years, more than you ever have been. You men need to learn to have self-assurance, exercise, build your body in the right way, not to hurt others, but to protect and to be strong, to protect your wife, to protect your children, to be a man, to give you physical encouragement. You need that. Don't be nicey-nice wimps. And if you have that drive and you have that courage, you'll, you'll want to marry more of these beautiful girls. Having all these beautiful young girls comes in makes me wish I was 60 years younger. <laughs> if, I were just, if I were just 40 years younger, it wouldn't be any good because I'm all right at 85 in another few weeks. So if I were 60 years younger, I'd be just 25 years old. But now I'm, I, I can just say, well, there are a lot of pretty girls here. I hope these young men have a little, eat, eat some, uh, I hope they're eating their vitamin E. I hope they're getting some exercise and that they could have a normal desire to have a family, to have a wife, to have someone in their arms, to want to build a love with another human being, to share their life with another human being, to want to protect and watch over and encourage that beautiful girl, and to want love and kindness and a family, and not be afraid of it, not be afraid of it. But know that that is what God Almighty intended. It is not good for man to be alone. So you guys out there, you better get busy or I'm going to get my cane. I'm going to come after you. <laughs> Watch out. Anyway, I hope you'll do that in the right way. We have a whole bunch of beautiful girls right here and some men, frankly, in our whole society. One of the brethren just sent me a book the other day. I don't know who it was, Why Men Don't Marry. It was my woman who studied it and showed how the whole psychology of women pushing ahead and men pulling behind is affecting. She may have something in the book. I haven't read it all yet, but on food. The Monsanto company out of St. Louis, uh, this foodless food 
all this uh, stuff is taking the, the hormones right, right out of the food where the male hormone is affected and men don't have the normal drive they used to have. The women are the same, but if somehow it affects the male hormone more than the female hormone. And men don't realize it. They don't even have it as much as they should. But by God's Spirit and wanting to be a man and wanting to fulfill God's purpose, wanting to be a family, like God tells you to have a family, God is a family, you will want that. And by exercising, it will give you that extra vigor. So I hope that all of you can be courageous in that way and courageous in spiritual ways, of course, most of all. But now that you're here as single people, I'm going to preach at you a little bit. So I don't want to give Mr. McNair and Dr. Scott Winnell a heart attack here. I don't want you to rush out and propose a whole bunch of you just tonight. But take your time. Be sure. But don't be afraid of these beautiful girls. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to be a man. Be a man. Be a husband. Build a family. That's what God wants. And he's all for that 100%. And I think you know that we as a church are all for it too. Now turn, if you would, back to Luke, uh, Luke uh, chapter uh, 6, if you would. Turn back to Luke chapter 6, and uh, I'm going to begin reading here in uh, verse 12. In Luke's 12, it came to pass in those days that Christ went up to a mountain to pray. How did Jesus pray? He continued all night in prayer to God. He had been with God from eternity. And out under the evening stars, he could lift up his eyes and said, Father, we were, were together for, you know, eons. But I'm down here on earth and you're up there. Please hear my prayer. I'm surrounded by human flesh. I don't have the same degree of power that I had or the degree of your mind. Help me. Guide me. Show me which one of these young men to choose to be my apostles. I need your insight and discernment. I need your wisdom and judgment. Peter's a very good man, very zealous, but sometimes he's a little impetuous. Should I choose him? And doubting Thomas over here, or Thomas, I should say, is very kind and thoughtful, courteous, but somehow he doubts all the time. Should I choose him? <laughs> you know, Christ was probably going right down the line asking God's wisdom. He prayed all night. And when it was day, he called his disciples. And from them, he chose 12 whom he named apostles. So he prayed all night. Do you seek God with all your heart? Do you pray for hours sometimes? Do you dwell on it? Do you seek God? Do you want God in you? Do you want Christ in you? Do you want God's Spirit in you enough that you will pray over and over again to ask God's will? So he chose these young men and names them then. And then it says uh, he had a great multitude coming there with him in verse 17. And it says in verse 17, the latter part, that they came to hear him and he healed their diseases as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him for power. Get this. Power went out from him. Verse 19. And he healed them all. Why? Where did that power come from? Had Jesus been lifting weights? No. He'd been praying all night. All night long cried out, God was very, very real to him, even though he was in the human flesh. He'd been in deep, profound 
contact with God. And so the next day he had unusual power and people were healed in a very, very dramatic way. Then you turn over to uh, chapter uh, 18 now, if you would. Luke, turn with me now to Luke chapter 18. And part of this we read a lot, so I don't want to dwell on it, but just an important thing that we make this part of the sermon. Luke chapter 18, then Jesus took, spoke a parable that men always pray. Don't ever quit praying. Let God be very real to you. Drink into this book and feed on Christ. Otherwise, your prayers will become shallow. You won't even know what to pray about as you ought. Feed on Christ. But he, men always ought to pray and not lose heart. Not get discouraged. Not give up and quit. He told about this widow who kept coming to the judge. And the judge said, even though... I don't fear God and don't regard man, yet this poor widow is going to wear me out. And the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge says when he finally heard this woman who kept coming. She did not give up. And Jesus said, it shall not God avenge his own elect. Notice that, verse 7. Who are God's elect? Are you among God's elect? His elect who cry out. Again, that word means yell out sometimes. Passionate, it has that implication. Who cry out night and day to him, though he bears long with them. Do you cry out to God in the middle of the night when you can't sleep? Do you wake up in the morning and lift up your hand and try to get toward a wind if you can? Look out to the create, look out to the sky. Says Father in heaven, Lord God of Abraham, hear my prayer. I need your help today. Cry out to God. Start every day like that. And so. Though he bear along with them, I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. In his time, God will intervene. Nevertheless, Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, when Christ comes the second time, in what generation? Your generation, you young people. When Christ comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Indicating there won't be very much. And there isn't very much, but there ought to be a lot more faith every year that goes by in this group right here because we are the church of God. We're the last message of the Philadelphia era, and we've got to be sure we become full Philadelphians and have God's Spirit dwelling in us. So we want to realize that. So we cry out day and night. We've got to realize, brethren, think about this. Think about this. What is the most important ingredient in the face of the earth we need? God's Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit. We need the very nature of God. For God's Spirit is the very God's very nature, the sperm. It's the very offspring of God. We become full sons of God. It is powerful. And there's nothing in the entire universe that is more important than having God's Spirit in you than having Christ in you. And I want to go now at this point. I left this out, but I've inserted this as something I've often given you, older brethren, but don't ever get bored with it. It's become one of my favorite scriptures in all the Bible. John 6. You've got to have everything, and I won't preach about every aspect of Christian living, but these two things always go together, and you've got to have them. In John chapter 6, in one of the most deep, profound sections of the entire Bible, bar none, why we read certain things here that every one of us needs to read, to think about, to pray about regularly. 
In John chapter 6, Jesus said in verse 53, Here is God in the flesh telling us what's important. John 6, 53. Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. You've got to fully drink and eat of Jesus Christ. Permeate your mind with Jesus Christ. Saturate your mind with Jesus Christ. Saturate your mind with this book. This is Jesus Christ in print. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. You're not spirit yet, but you have the impregnation of God's very nature, and I will raise him up at the last day. You want to be resurrected? Read this book. Feed on it. Feed on it where you think like God thinks. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, notice, abides in me, and I in him. Christ lives in you to the degree that you feed on this book, and then you pray to God and interact with God, and obviously with meditation about what you've read, with fasting, and then action, action. You walk with Christ. You walk with God day by day and put it into action. As the living Father, verse 57, sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me. If you feed on Christ, you learn to really study. Mr. Armstrong sometimes talks about studying the Bible and commentaries all day long in the Portland Library if you read his biography. I came to Ambassador College as a carnal young man from Joplin, Missouri. had a year of junior college and had a course in philosophy. I came out checking up on Mr. Armstrong. I did. I checked up on him many different ways, and I told you. And he laughed later. He said, I had nothing to hide. I talked to Mrs. Armstrong off the record after I got to know her. I talked to Dick Armstrong, became one of his best friends. He asked me to go to Europe and all over with him many times. He was not even baptized until after his graduation from college. So when I was asking him all these questions, he was still carnal. I loved him. He was a typical preacher's son. He wasn't converted for a while. He took it for granted. But did these things happen? They said, yes, Dad would come home at night. He'd study some more, study some more. Day and night, he was feeding on this book, studying the Bible. He would sometimes lay the Bible on a day bed and study the Bible on his knees. Got down on his knees so God would talk to him. As you talk to God on your knees when you pray, sometimes you can let God to talk to you by having the Bible down there and on your knees. As you feed on Christ, you live because of the Father. So he who feeds on me by feeding on this book, he will live because of me. Notice verse 63. We're here to talk about the Holy Spirit, which is poured out at Pentecost. Repent and be baptized. You'll receive God's Spirit. Jesus said, it is the Spirit who gives life. That's the only way you'll get eternal life, the very nature of God who impregnates you with God's very love and joy and peace and faith and mind and power. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, notice, these words in this book are spirit and they are life. When you read these books, especially the very words of Christ, these words are spirit. You want God's Spirit? You're drinking in of God's Spirit, God's very nature when you read these words. These words are Spirit and they are life. Feed on them if you want God's Holy Spirit surging through you. 
If you want more faith, feed on God, feed on the Word of God, and so on. So all of us have to understand that that is the most important thing to cry out for. Back in Second Peter, if you turn to Second Peter chapter one with me now, Second Peter, and let's go to chapter one, and Peter talks about the precious faith of the righteous. And he says in verse two, Second Peter one two, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as his divine power. God has all the power in the universe. He's going to shake the earth. He's going to shake the nations. They will come crashing down. Everything around all your friends is going to come to an end. It won't be there anymore. We've got to have our mind on the real God. That's the ultimate reality. So as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness of the knowledge of him who called you to glory and virtue by which you have been given exceeding great and precious promises, magnificent promises, God promises, that through these you may be partakers of what? A partakers of God, his power, partakers of the divine nature, because the Holy Spirit is the very nature and character of God put inside of you. You will then have his love, his joy, his peace, his faith, his complete power and mastery of the self and the world and Satan, the divine nature. So God is giving us that, having escaped the corruption that is in the world. But for this very reason, giving diligence, don't do it half-heartedly, don't be a latency, and be diligent, cry out to God, study hard, work hard to overcome. Be diligent to add to your faith, you believe in God, add virtue, strength of character, add strength of character. And then add to that knowledge so you technically know the way you should go. To knowledge, self-control. You've got to control yourself. And then perseverance. Don't give up and quit so quickly. Perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To be totally like God. Reflect God. Reflect Christ in everything you think and say and do. And to godliness, you're just thinking sentimentally. Be like God. But also remember your fellow man. God is perfect. You can think I'm going to be so holy and just talk to God and yet be rude to your neighbor or jealous or mad at your neighbor. Add to your godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. That constant attitude of outflowing concern, the worship and adoration for your creator who is your father and the depth of love that you should have for your other human beings. So we need that, brethren. And we need to realize that is the most important thing there is. That's what we ought to cry out for. That's what we ought to pray hours for, like Jesus Christ did. That's what we need to go out with all of our heart to get. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 9, if you turn back there with me, you find how Moses had to have help at one point. Deuteronomy chapter 9. And he was we prayed God was going to destroy all Israel because of their paganism, their fornication, and their wild party where he had to break the tables of the Ten Commandments. He says in verse 18, And I fell down before the Lord as at the first forty days and forty nights, a second forty days and nights, eighty days he was fasting. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of your sins to provoke God to wrath. And so he was afraid of what was going to happen to these people, and he cried out for even Aaron that God would not destroy him. And he says here, 
in verse 25. Notice verse 25 here. Thus I prostrated myself before the Lord. He fell on his face. Moses, as you know, spoke face to face with God. God was very real. But Moses knew that God had all power and awesomeness and wanted to be worshipped in that way. I prostrated myself before the ever-living one. Forty days and forty nights, I kept prostrating myself over and over again. Hear me, O God, hear me. For forty days and nights, he got on his face over and over because the Eternal said he would destroy you. Verse 26, Therefore I prayed to the Eternal and said, O Lord God, do not destroy your people or your inheritance whom you redeemed. Remember your servants, Abraham. And I ask you, brethren, and you young people, remember, drink into this book, feed upon it, for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and these great promises become real, and God is real, and you want to cry out to God, and if you have to prostrate yourself right on the ground over and over, cry out to God. Father, I want eternal life. Help me. Help me. I want to seek first your kingdom. I don't want to be overcome by all this stuff. I need your help. I've got to have your help. So, brethren, I hope you can understand. Learn to do it with a passion. A lot of people your age, you young people, are off in rock concerts, and they scream and yell, and here comes rock star, and they get all excited, jump and scream because some kid is coming up in front of them. Some pretty young girl is wiggling her hips and yelling, and often yelling instead of singing, but they make all this noise with a steel guitar. Sometimes it's not music, it's noise. But anyway, that's a different story. (laughs) Back here in Deuteronomy chapter 4, God talks to all of us. I've read you this before, but please remember this, brethren. Deuteronomy 4, verse 24, he says, uh, uh, verse uh, 26, I mean. Deuteronomy 4, 26, he tells our ancestors, I call heaven and earth to witness against you that soon every one of you will perish from the land as you go across, and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number where the Lord will drive you. He knew our nation would turn aside. He knew how carnal they were, and there you will serve gods, you see, pagan gods, the work of men's hands, idols, which cannot see nor hear nor smell. But from there, from this horrible captivity that is coming, You're going to have to have faith and courage and power. You must not be cowardly. And you've got to go all out so you can make it. From that captivity, we hope we won't have to go there first before we wake up. But from there, you will seek. God doesn't just automatically come to you, brethren, even just because you're sitting in church on your home tonight and tomorrow. You'd better get up early. Get toward a window if you are able to and lift up and say, God in heaven, you sit up there in that beauty beyond the trees, beyond the clouds. You are God and I'm your servant. Help me. You seek the eternal, your God, with all your heart and you will find him. How will you find him? If, the biggest two-letter word in the English language, if you seek him with all your heart, not part of your heart, all your heart and with all your soul. So go all out. That is the single most important thing is to have God's spirit, God's power, Jesus Christ living his life in you and the power that comes through that. When you're in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days, that's when you're going to have to cry out. When you go into captivity, you'll finally wake up 
and when you turn to the Lord your God and obey His voice. So I ask you to begin to obey God's voice now. Don't do it half-heartedly. Do it with every fiber of your being. There's one thing on earth that's more important than anything else, and that is to have Christ living within you. That is this Word. Christ is the Word of God in, in, in flesh. And that is the power of God living in you. That power that came on the early Christians on the day of Pentecost many, many years ago. We're carrying on that tradition. We are the church of the living God. Let's know that. Let's have courage and faith in that. Let's do our part that we may be there to teach these billions of people the way of God and they'll come up from the grave. Many of them are from, they'll come back weeping and crying and literally shaking from the concentration camps. They will have been tortured, humiliated, and they'll be willing to listen because they will want Christ in them and the power of God. And if you use that power to overcome yourself, to overcome this world and all these things thrown at you from the world around you and overcome Satan the devil and the coming great tribulation, you will be there and you will have eternal life and live forever because Christ will have been living his life within you through the power of God's Spirit.